0: The reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and if you're using a, a church Bible, it's on page 1174. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Praise the Lord.
1: Thank you, Val. I wonder when I mention the word transformation. I wonder what comes to mind. It's not just um, change, is it? It's something very much stronger than change. It's dramatic change, where something is barely recognisable from what it once was. You might watch TV programmes like Changing Rooms, and you'll see a team come in and do a makeover of a room or a makeover of a house and see a completely different. Or something like Pimp My Ride, when an old jalopy is transformed into a gleaming set of wheels that's the, the envy of everyone on the road. I think we might have a couple of pictures here actually coming up. This is the before. Good old Fiat Panda. <laughs> How you like a car like that? And when you see the expression of the faces of those who um, come in and see the transformation. They're, they're, they're just amazed. Um, how could it be possible to change something so dramatically? And what we've heard this evening are three stories, but emotional stories, of before and after. Before I didn't accept Jesus as my saviour, but now I do. In the case of Matt... And Jess, you've had Christian upbringings. On the outside, you may not see a, a huge change. They themselves may not feel such a change, particularly if they can't pinpoint the precise moment of their conversion. But when someone does become a Christian, there's something quite dramatic that is taking place. And we'll see what that is as we look at this passage from Ephesians. The passage divides quite neatly into two sections. The first three verses describe what we were all like and then the verses 4 to 10 compare that with what we are now like what is the difference between somebody who has given their life to Jesus Christ and somebody who is not yet a believer and that is what will come out from this passage so there's just two main points I want to make tonight first of all what we were like what we were like the first thing that um, Paul says in this passage is, we were dead. We were dead. And when we use that term to describe something other than physical death, it's usually in the context of something that is dull, something that is boring, something that is unexciting. The opposite is somebody who's full of life, somebody who's lively and energetic, somebody who has the best social life, somebody who has the most friends on Facebook, but what Paul is saying here is that even if you consider yourself a real live wire, you can still be dead. Because the most important thing is not your personality, your looks, your intelligence, your athleticism, but the state of your soul, your spiritual life. To be spiritually dead is to be oblivious to what Paul describes here as your transgressions and your sins which are really two ways of describing sin. On the one hand, you have the idea of going astray, exceeding the boundaries that have been set, making a a conscious decision to do something that is against what God wants us to do. In other words, rebelling. And the other idea is the idea of of missing the mark, of not living up to to God's perfect standards of holiness being a failure. And then we've got a couple of images of those as it says underneath the failure one when your best isn't good enough on the one hand we are rebels on the other hand we are failures either way we are all sinners we were dead secondly we were slaves I think psychologists have spent their lives trying to work out what it is that makes us the way we are is it nurture or is it nature nature And this passage accepts in many ways that it is both. It says, you follow the ways of this world. You're a product of your environment, of your culture. I think it's very easy to underestimate the powerful pull of the world around us. In our views, in our behaviour, in the way we bring up our children, in our leisure pursuits, etc., etc., But also in verse 3 it says, all of us also, and this is where Paul acknowledges that this is not the case for the ones he's writing to. This is very much applicable to him as well. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We followed our natural human instincts. We did what we wanted to do. When the first... Humans, Adam and Eve, were given the choice of enjoying life in the world under God's rule or seeking to be their own rulers, their own kings. They represented the whole of humanity and in deciding to go their own way, we all became enslaved to sin. And our natural human tendency now is to do things on our own terms, to live life our way. Paul also describes here as the spiritual battle that is going on, which we may not even be aware of. He talks of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, the devil. The devil is a real person. He's somebody who doesn't want us to follow Jesus. And he'll do all he can to lead us astray by making us think, well, we're not really that bad. Well, we don't really need God. We're okay. And all these three elements, the cultural the physical, the spiritual, all of them combined to affect the way we behave. And the result of that is that although we may like to think we are, we're actually not our own masters. We are merely slaves, slaves to sin. And so the consequence was we were guilty. Verse 3 says we were by nature objects of wrath. People get quite worked up about the idea of uh, a wrathful and angry God. They can cope with a God of love, but an angry God, surely the two don't go together. Because anger is not like human anger. Human anger is a loss of temper, it's a desire to seek revenge, it's a loss of patience, it's frustration, it's not getting one's own way, not winning one's argument. It's the feeling you have when a traffic warden stands over your car filling out a ticket. You are angry. But God's anger is a righteous anger. It's a perfect, consistent and predictable reaction to evil. It's not the opposite of love. That is hatred. You can love somebody and be angry. You can be angry if you want the best for them. If you offer somebody a chance to be free from slavery to sin, to be considered completely innocent of all sin, and they reject that because they think they know what is best, then it is legitimate to be angry. That is the response of God. We were guilty because we failed to live up to God's standards and because we refused to try to live up to God's standards. We were guilty. We stood condemned. And so what changed? What was the cause of the dramatic transformation that took place in us, if we are believers, the dramatic transformation that has taken place in the lives of Matt, Jess and Steve? Well, the passage goes on in verse 4. And the first two words it starts with are, but God, but God. Who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive with Christ. In summary, it is by grace you have been saved. It looked as if the situation was completely hopeless. There was nothing that could be done about it, about our slavery to sin, about our condemnation. And then the only one who could do about it, anything about it, steps in, but God. And if you feel this evening that your situation is totally hopeless, that there is nothing that can be done for you. There is a God who can bring you back to spiritual life. We don't deserve it. And that is the amazing thing about it, that he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, it says here. He didn't wait until we'd made ourselves good enough, until we were more presentable, until we'd achieved enough spiritual brownie points. Because we would never get to that point. But God. We talk of Jesus as a, as a saviour, but what actually did he save us from? Well, he saved us from precisely those three things that we've mentioned already, that we were, that described our life as it was. Spiritual death, slavery to sin, and God's wrath. And we understand that better when we look at what it says that God has done for us. It says we were dead in our sins, but... God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves to sin, but God raised us up with Christ. We were guilty, but God has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. And if we look back to the end of chapter 1, we see there that God, by his power, raised Christ from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, and the amazing thing about chapter 2 is that God has raised us up with him and He seated us in the heavenly realms. And as we become Christians, what is different about us, what has changed is change? not simply that we worship Jesus now, that we become members of the church, that we, we live more moral lives, but that we are people who are in Christ By being united with Christ, we share in his resurrection, in his ascension. And that is what this baptism symbolises that we're going to be seeing in just a short moment. As Matt, Jess and Steve go under the water, as Matt was saying before, they're symbolising that the sin that previously ruled their lives has been put to death. And as they come back out of the water, seeming Paddy's strong enough, They're they're symbolising rising to new life, new life in Jesus Christ. These heavenly realms in which um, we are seated, they they, they are the the, the unseen spiritual world in which Christ reigns. And it's there that we have been seated. In case you're thinking, well, this is some sort of mystical nonsense... It's something that we as as Christians experience. It's something we know in a very real way in our lives. We we are aware of God's love for us. We are aware of his control over the events that go on in our lives. We heard from Steve earlier on about the events that brought him to Crendon. The events that brought him into this church. It's also the fact that we are prompted to, to love God. We are prompted to love his people. We are more able by the power of God to, to fight temptation, to fight evil. We are aware of him making us more like Jesus Christ, producing fruit of love and joy and peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. To be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms is to be no longer guilty, to no longer stand condemned and face judgment. No, we are different. Our status before God is different. And when the Father looks at us, he sees us and he sees his son together. He sees his innocence credited to us. The government's come in for a bit of a stick recently about the merger of Lloyd's and HBOS, if you're into banking. Lloyd's was comparatively healthy But when it was merged with HBOS, it became contaminated. But when we are united with Christ, he doesn't become contaminated by us. We receive his innocence. That is credited to us. And God looks at us in a very different way. What is clear from the first few verses of this passage is that our situation was hopeless. But God, it was only God who could do anything about it. But why would he want to do anything about it, you may ask. And the answer is very clear in these verses. It says, because of his great love for us, because he is rich in mercy, it is by grace that you have been saved. The meaning of mercy is not to give somebody what they really deserve. We were condemned. We deserved God's wrath for our rebellion for our failure. But God waived that punishment because his son took it for us. The salvation that he gave us was something we didn't deserve. It could only come out of God's grace. And the reason it says here that God raised us up, that he seated us with Christ, was in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us. In Jesus Christ. It is that grace of God that is so vital to having a relationship with him. What is that, that grace exactly? Well, When we do the Christian Explored course, which we're starting this week, which um, if you do want to join us, do please speak to me about it afterwards. There's an illustration used in there to describe um, grace. And it comes from the story of uh, Les Miserables, where one of the central characters is somebody called Jean Valjean. He's uh, served 19 years of hard labour for stealing a loaf of bread and trying to escape from prison a few times as well. And when he's finally released, he, he can't find work, he can't find shelter. And he's taken in by a bishop, a bishop who offers him food and somewhere to sleep. But Valjean betrays the trust of that bishop. He steals some valuables and he makes a run for it. He's caught by the police and the police bring him back to confront the bishop and the bishop has the power to effectively have him convicted to prison for the rest of his life but what the bishop says is this he says oh there you are I'm so pleased to see you had you forgotten that I gave you the silver candlesticks as well have you come back to collect them and so the police let him go now Valjean could have continued in his life of crime he could have said well that was a a close one But he was so moved by that act of grace of the bishop that he became an honest man. And that is the same with God's grace. In sending his son to die, he took a huge risk of grace. There will be many who ignore the fact that that sacrifice was for them and carry on living as though he had never done it. And that may be you this evening, remaining untouched by God's grace. But there will be others like Matt, Steve and Jess who will be so touched by his grace that undeserved kindness that he's shown us that they will want to commit their lives to him in gratitude and be obedient to him in baptism. Grace is something that we as, as humans find so difficult to understand because it goes much against our, our human instincts. Why should anybody want to give us anything for free? I guess all of us at some stage have been victims of of people appearing to offer us a deal that is too good to be true. And the reason they appear to be too good to be true is because they, they aren't true. We had the $50 Madoff fraud recently. This week we've had another one uncovered. But the reason God's free gift of being rescued from death, from slavery to sin from condemnation the reason that is genuine and we can trust in it is because his love is perfect we are incapable of loving in that way however much love we may have for somebody it's always going to be tainted by by sin in this life but God's love is perfect and there comes a point where we have to trust in that grace for ourselves in verse 8 it says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It was the motto of the the Protestant reformers in the sixteenth century salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Although God has done everything necessary for us to be saved, Jesus' death is sufficient for all. There comes a point where we have to trust in the act of salvation that Jesus did that for us on the cross. We have to trust that when we stand before God and he asks us, why should I let you into heaven? Well, we can say that because Jesus paid my penalty. He opened the way for me to stand before you. And the problem that most people have is that they are going through like believing in something else. They're putting them trust in themselves, that they maybe have a right to get into heaven. Look at all the good things that I have done. And for many people, if they can't get to heaven on their own terms, they would rather not go to heaven. But to have faith in God's grace is to believe that only God can save me. It is that faith in God's grace that has brought Steve, Matt and Jess here this evening to profess their faith. And if you haven't yet put your faith in God's grace, can I just ask you, what is it that's, Holding you back. Maybe tonight is the night. Don't keep putting that decision off. If you still have a lot of questions, then, as I say, do come and join us for Christianity Explored and we can work through those questions with you. But ultimately, we do need to make a decision. Do we trust that God's grace is perfect and sufficient for us? Well, as we come now to the baptism. In just a moment, it's good to remind ourselves why we are doing this. Why do we continue to practice this act of baptism? And it's for three simple reasons. The first is that because Jesus himself was baptised. If ever there was somebody who didn't need to be baptised, it was him. He was sinless. But he was baptised to identify himself with us, to lead by example. And so we have the privilege of following in his footsteps. And secondly, because Jesus teaches us to be baptised. His last instructions to his disciples were to go and make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And finally, that is what the early church did. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came was poured out, followers of Jesus went proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And after Peter preached to them, the people asked, what shall we do? What shall we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins.